Welcome to Two Takes in the Pod. My name is Osai, and this is my podcast where I take on themes exploring culture and society as seen by an everyday Nigerian in diaspora. Right now, we're discussing what led up to the first coup in Nigeria in January 15, 1966. In the first part of the conversation, we covered the three major regional parties. Then we went into the background of the leaders and then discussed their ideologies. In part two, we kicked things off with the AG rift between its head Awolowo and deputy Akintola. We briefly touched on the general strike right before the 1964 federal elections where new alliances are formed. All this inevitably leads to a western region crisis. Why there and what happened elsewhere? Well, you have to listen for that. To say this was a contentious time in Nigeria would be one hell of an understatement. Enjoy. What's interesting to me is that uh, in February 1962, Action Group or Awolo's group, faction within Action Group, win enough seats um, in the Western Region elections, right? Uh, three months later, Awolowo submits a motion to, of no confidence against Akintola. It is successful and he's essentially re- um, replaced him with uh, Alaji Adegmenru. So apparently that was that essentially happened in the state house. But prior to that being effectively done, uh, they stage a pro- I guess they staged a disturbance disturbance in the state house, and apparently chairs and tables were flung. There were thugs basically disrupting the motion. Eventually, they had to bring police into the state house to essentially continue that uh, proceeding. And even after that, there was still a lot of disruption. What happens next is that Chief Tafawa um, uh, Belowa, a prime minister, essentially calls, calls, declares a state of emergency and assigns his friend, Dr. Moses uh, Koyejo Majekodomi, as temporary administrator. Right? So, six months later, Awolowo is in prison for quote unquote treason, and Akintola is reinstated as the premier of the Western region without any voting. And the expectation of the people in the Western region at that time was that there would be some sort of voting proceeding to essentially pick who would be the next premier of that region. Now, my thing is, what, where do you see, I guess I don't even know what to ask, really. Like, what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, so are you suggesting corruption on the, uh, or collusion between Akitola and Tafa Balewa? What's interesting to me is that um, it's how quickly Tafa Balewa declares a state of emergency and then assigns his friend, right, to, to essentially have control of the region. When the disruption seemed to have only occurred within the state house, it wasn't happening all over the regions of Western region. Mm-hmm. That's something that was happening for days on end. Just, in, just to interrupt you, it was yeah. happening in the state house just in a battle in, in Oyo, which is today one of maybe, you know, six or seven states that will make up the Western region. So right. more or less a minority place. Right. And, right. It, and if it's within the building, like that's not a state of emergency, right? Like, if, no, if, you know, so, so to me, uh, it's interesting that that happens, but that basically creates a precedent for him to take over the federal government to take over the Western region and ultimately later on install Akintola as, uh, as premier of the Western region without an election. Right. So it's not clear to me if that's unconstitutional or not, but Clearly, the people expected 
the people expected a vote to happen at the end of that, uh, you know, I guess that state of emergency. Yeah, 100%. And I think that was definitely a political maneuver between Akitola and Tafa Baliwa, where they more or less agreed in private. Because uh, I guess one of the things I'll add to that is that a lot of scholars who've written about that event allege that it was staged by um, Akitola. Yeah. So, you know, there's that aspect where it's not even a real emergency. And I think that is even more <clears throat> solidified by the fact that the violence didn't spread. Right. And to add to your earlier point about the violence that erupted after the 1964 election in 1965, in 1965, uh, the <clears throat> a member of parliament from Lagos actually moved a motion in the Federal House of Representation and Representatives calling for a declaration of a state of emergency. And Tafa Baliwa declined, even though the violence had reached Lagos. So that definitely speaks more to his political motives because in 1965, Akitola was already in power and he didn't want to do anything to disrupt that as opposed to in 1962 when Akitola's power was more or less in question. Right. Yeah. And he called for a state of emergency. And like you're saying, ignored the will of the people and didn't call for fresh elections and instead just installed or imposed, rather, Akitola on the Western region. Right. And uh, so, so what's also interesting is that during this six-month period, right, Awolowo and about nine or ten of his cohorts essentially are tried for an alleged coup. And they were basically accused of training fighters in Ghana with Nkrumah and paying, soldiers, paying off soldiers to essentially join in setting up that coup, right? But what this really did was effectively fracture the leadership and the uh, Awolowo loyalists within the action group. Like, so essentially, they destroyed the action group. <laughs> Right, so that six months, they essentially put Akintola back in power, and they've destroyed what uh, would have been the Awolowo loyalists within the action group. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's exactly what happened. It was a farce. The trial was a farce, and Complete you know, farce. it's one thing to target Awolowo, but it's another thing to target the entire leadership of the action group. More or less, right. so to find that um, Akintola will have no contest in his rule in the Western region. But obviously, right. this was not the case because in 1964, when there were no elections, Akitola was not the clear winner. That, right. that election is just marred with allegations of fraud. Right. So, yeah. so just before we get to that, because that's a great point. Because I, I want to really be as objective as possible as we're having this conversation. I don't want it to seem like we're totally leaning on one way or the other. So if anybody's listening right now, like this is literally just what the facts say. Like we are, hmm. we are sorts different people, different times when this information was collected in the 1960s, in the 2000s, um, from the book that we're also referencing, um, uh, one of the major books that we're re re uh, referencing, which is All Politics and Violence um, by Max Sioun. So one of the things he points out in the book is that Samuel Ikoku, who was, I think, uh, part of the action group, uh, he was the AG General Secretary. Um, confessed that the plot that there was a real plot that they had attempted to um, overthrow the federal government, right? So I think there was there was a lot of deep frustrations there, and I think there were some people within Action Group that were open and considering this issue, 
right? But this was never really proven, right? So this is again is a this is a court of law. Anybody can sus be suspected or accused of anything, but you need to essentially provide proof to justify that this thing is happening, right? And the funny thing about treason historically is that, especially in the British monarchy, treason was effectively just used to shut up your political opponents, right? Like you essentially being dissentful uh, towards a uh, you know a monarch or a, or a leader or somebody in influential position was essentially could be, essentially be looked at as treason, right? So it's important to note that. Um, even though there might have been legitimate frustrations and uh, intentions to do that by some people, there, there was no proof that it actually was executed or happened, right? At least not at that time. And yeah, like, I, like uh, to your point, that, that will be like very well said. If there is no evidence of these soldiers in Ghana, you know, there's no evidence of collusion from... Nkrumah, who himself had no power and had been deposed by that time, it's just, for lack of a better word, um, very Nigerian that you could just lock up 10 more or less political heavyweights in one uh, region and right. more or less shut them up. And, you know, that, that right. kind of sets the precedent, uh, the precedence of locking up political prisoners from you know, just up to MK Abiola, who more or less won a free and fair election, and immediately he won was put in jail. Right, right. So, um, so you know, one of the reasons why we are we are kind of giving you all of this information, um, or, or we're we're essentially addressing all of this, right, is because we we are we are trying to essentially show you the breakdown in trust between the people and the leadership and some of the incentives. That led to you know to led to their decision making, right? Because when we start talking about the coup and you know people are trying to understand why people would do such a terrible thing, which it is terrible, um, it 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 should it will help paint a picture of of essentially what conditions led to ha that happening. Now, so we've talked about the uh the census, we've just talked about the breakdown within the um action group and the Western region leadership, right? Uh, it's also important to know that Akintola essentially showed up as the new premier with a different party. It was actually called um, the United People's Party, is what he wanted to go with initially. And then later on, he co-opted uh, what was initially uh, Herbert Macaulay's party prior to NTNC, which was the NNDP, the national, um, I think the Nigerian National Democratic Party. Yeah, that is it. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, so he essentially created the Nigerian National Democratic Party. The next thing I want to talk about is the 1964 general strike. Uh, Just to interrupt you, um, Osai, yeah. um, some other, in addition to the book Osai mentioned earlier, which is Oil Politics and Violence by Max Seelman, um, other sources which I, I found helpful was Nigerian Political Parties, Power in an Emerging African Nation, which is a book written by Robert Sklar. That's Sklar with a K. Yeah, that was a, that's actually a great book. And, and it really provides the necessary context for, yeah, for sure. the, the mindset of, of the leaders. Um, it, 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 you know, and, and to, at, the end of the, at the end of the podcast, uh, I'll probably just read out all the references, all the books and papers that were referenced. And if people are interested in doing a little bit more digging, 
we'll provide that yeah we'll provide more information no but that's i think that's it's just good to essentially point that out um so the 1964 general strike uh i think was a clear reaction to the growing distrust uh, and the gross abuse of power right like we've basically just unpacked you know different instances of where um the 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 federal government essentially exploited their position and uh, and really imposed unfair practices on people. So the 1964 general, uh, general strike essentially speaks to that as well, where 300,000 workers organized themselves into 300 unions across the country and protested for 14 days in June of 1964. Apparently, it cost the nation between 4 and 14 million mandates, which I'm honestly not sure what that means in dollars or naira, but... Um, so it sounds quite significant, right? Um, that's like a million, a million man day, uh, people per day or something. A million, I guess a million workers' productivity per day, right? Is, is, is how we can eventually do that. Um, so it's interesting that this happened all over the country, right? Um, and it was mainly a frustration with the political elite, right? And the Southern unions and the youth groups ultimately uh, are following this, this uh, general strike decided that they were going to be backing the action group and the NTNC. Um, so let's, let's, let's get into the action group and the NTNC. So, you know, what we've essentially discussed now is that there was a fracture within the action group and uh, Akintola carved out his own uh, uh, group or his own party from that, essentially calling it the NNDP. And uh, the NTNC and uh, NPC alliance essentially had broken down and the NTNC was essentially fielding uh, new partners or new coalitions uh, leading up to the 1964 election, right? So what essentially this means is we understand that the NPC leadership, Tafawa Belewa and Amadou Bello, are closely aligned with uh, Akintola. So they, the NPC and the NNDP essentially co combine to form the Nigerian National Alliance. And uh, the action group, or what was left of the action group, because it's important to remember that their leadership, most of their leadership was now in jail for what would be roughly 10 to 20 years. And um, the, what was left was essentially the youth faction within that group who had essentially partnered with what was also the um, NCNC to see if they could form their own government. Now, this was looked at by uh, Tafawa Belewa as, you know, a, uh, you know, a desperate act, you know, act just to essentially find some voice. But what was your perspective with those uh, coalitions that were formed following, uh, you know, I guess the breakdown of the original uh, Eastern uh, Action Group and NCNC coalitions? I think uh, from my perspective would be, uh, it would have been more or less a last, uh, like a, Last hurrah. I don't know how to say last it. Resort. It last resort. I don't say it's a last resort because that makes it seem like it was a bad thing. But I mean, it was an attempt by what was left of Abulawa's followers who were not in jail to still attempt to check the power of the North. Right. Or attempt to secure some sort of political power in the South. And they did this by forming an alliance, which would probably not have been possible if Abulawa was still free i actually disagree with that because because when when um, you know in my research i actually found that um even even when i will uh, i guess resigned from his premiership to run um 
I guess, for the federal government in 1959. Uh, he actually tried to uh, set up a coalition with the NCNC, but it was unsuccessful. I think the bad blood still remain, right? So, mm. so, so he so did. He did. Yeah, I think it was actually rejected. So, so I mean, from from what I read, it just said it was an unsuccessful, right? Oh. But I think at, at that point, he had probably started to come around and recognize that you know that would be the only effective way to check that power. And I think that was also more more so why Amadebelo saw him as uh, a significant threat um, in that election because <laughs> um, because Amadebelo's words against him were were not were not <laughs> favorable at all. Sorry, what were we saying? And what I'm implied by a last hurrah would be if Aula was free, he would have still held that political power in the Western region where his followers wouldn't be just out of loyalty or what whatever would be right. corporate or would not just blatantly move or you know, what's the word? Decamp to the end or the newfound UPGA. Right. With Noah in jail. That would have created the perfect opportunity for them to yeah. actually. That was what I meant by that. <clears throat> I see. Okay, you, you're basically saying that. Yeah. You, you, so let me just see if you if I'm if I'm correct uh, if I'm understanding you correctly here. So you're basically saying that maybe the action group would have formed a coalition with the NCNC, but they would not have merged into one um, party. Correct. Yeah, I don't think so. Just because yeah. okay. our. That makes sense. That does make sense. Still has his own ego, right? So he still wanted to be leader to some extent, which which would have caused tension with the NCNC, I imagine. Or with Azikwe in particular. Yeah, um, who himself wanted to be leader. So. All right, I can't imagine them. Yeah, there isn't enough space for <laughs> for both their egos. Um, yeah, but I think I think I think that he started to lose that, right? I, I don't think uh going into the nineteen fifty nine elections, Awolowo was as tribalistic as possibly depicted. Um no, just no, no. Say- I, don't, I agree with that. Uh, especially with what you're saying where he's trying to form an alliance. I just mm-hmm. mean it's because it's still a political game. Um, game, yeah. you know. You have to pick your camp wisely. So if you're already with Awolowo's camp and you align with his agenda, you're aligned with but when the NCNC, you know, <clears throat> eventually has recognized that, in, especially after the 1962 census that we earlier discussed, has realized that the NPC is not going to share this power with us. Uh, it made it, it's like a natural evolution for them to try and form a more progressive party. In the form of the NPA. Right. So I mean, so I think you know, I think to your point, you might be right in terms of like they couldn't have effectively formed a party together. But it very clearly, though, at this point in time, it's it, it's it's obvious that they are more politically aligned more now than ever before, right? Especially after seeing what's going on with the current leadership in the country. Now let's jump into the actual elections, right? So. Um, UPGA, which was essentially NCNC and AG, uh, were able to effectively uh, secure their position in the East, right? Um, when it came to the elections, right? Uh, in the Midwest, they were also effective in essentially securing enough positions. The Midwest had just been carved out out of the Western region um, prior to 1959. 
um, or well, no, following, I think after 1959, so after independence, right? So the Midwest region and the, and the Eastern region were essentially secured uh, uh, as far as number of seats were concerned, or at least uh, majority was concerned. I think what's interesting, though, is what happened in the North and in the Western region during those elections, right? I'll start with the North, right? So what the text essentially suggests is that UPGA, uh, I guess, representatives uh, campaigning in the North were brutally beaten and attacked throughout their campaign, even to, to an extent where they, they, they arrested roughly 200 people. What, what was your, what's, in your research, what did you find, uh, I guess, during that period in time in terms of the in election? Like, what was happening in the North? Because what, what it seems like is, obviously, in the Eastern region, right, the North is not interested in campaigning. So they already have the number of seats that they want. So the Eastern region was essentially locked for UPGA. And I've, I can imagine that Akintola himself was also not actively interested in campaigning in that region, more just interested in securing the Western region, um, similar to the way the North would have been interested in just securing the Northern region, simply because they had not enough seats. So in those guys' point of view, if they secured the number of seats in their regions, they don't really need anything from the other, uh, from the other two regions. But obviously, this wasn't going to be the case for UPGA. So what do you think um, affected the dynamics there? Or what, what, what were some of the more important things that you picked up on um, during those elections? Um, I think the main thing I picked up was just the amount of corruption in the Western region, for sure. Um, and the fact that, like you mentioned earlier, the Midwestern region was created I feel that was a political move again by the NPC-led government to strip the South of its power. Absolutely. Because the Midwestern region would have been more or less lobbying for its own interests, um, its own political power, its own political seats. So I think uh, <clears throat> just uh, the fact that there was uh, you know, rife allegations and evidence of corruption in the Western region and the fact that the Eastern region was more or less consolidated with the UPGA, it made sense for the North to fight. And when I say fight, I mean, like you're saying, physically fight, <laughs> just elect, uh, people even campaigning on behalf of the UPGA in the North. Yeah. Because to retain um, their autonomy in the North, because they themselves would have lost some political power and they would have by fighting against the campaign of the UPGA. Right. So, I mean, so you say fighting, right? But I, I, from what I've been reading, it's just straight up bullying. Like, you know. That's what I mean. When I say fighting, yeah. I mean physical. Because, so, like, yeah. No, no. I, I, yeah, because, like, like, in the Western. I, I region, yeah. In, <laughs> oh, okay. I guess I said, and it's bullying 100%. In the Western region, it was really, really contentious, right? So, action groups still had supporters. Like, they still had people who were actively supporting them. So when they were getting intimidated by Kintola's people, there were enough um, action group supporters, um, I guess, or UPGA supporters by way of the action group, actively essentially fighting and pushing for seats there, right? So they would have had their own thugs. They would have had their own people who are fighting there. So that's, you know, kind of what led to the whole Western region crisis because of the violence that was happening even in the campaign period. But in the North, it was totally different, right? So UPGA people were getting arrested left and right. And, you know, we're talking about a total number of 200 people were actually arrested. And 
uh, out of those 200 people, I, I want to actually find the numbers. So just give me, give me one of those. Give me a second. Okay. So I want to read you um, a quote from uh, Alaji Aminukano, the leader of the NEPU, um, and obviously part of, he was also part of the UPGA. Um, he's like, the merciless beating of, up of supporters of opposition parties and compelling them to join the party in power or else face series of brutality and persecution is beyond common sense. At present, 26 August 1964, there are over 200 members of the NEPU jailed on various pretexts in Sokoto province. Thousands of UMBC supporters are languishing in prison in TIF divisions, while over 100 people have lost their lives. Thousands upon thousands of our party supporters were dumped into jails like bundles of woods or animals. Some were brutally killed. Wickedness in its highest magnitude was let loose, and the ordinary mass of men were terrorized, stunned to silence and fear. Law and order were raped. It was the most wicked and devilish doctrine which could not be conceived in hell itself. It was an example of sadism from which even a barbarian can shrink. To give, all, give the full account of this barbaric invasion of justice and democracy, we'll need a volume of over 5,000 pages. Now, I think this is a gross exaggeration, right? <laughs> I think it's an extremely gross exaggeration of what happened. But it's important to understand, like, this is essentially what they were dealing with in terms of campaigning in that region. I feel that uh, just speaks to the desperation, you know, by the NPC at the time. Where their quote unquote northern hegemony <laughs> or northern, you know, unity is definitely being called into question. Where, you know, it's no it's now a facade. So they have to go through any and every means to secure the their political power. And they can't right. do I mean, this in but any I, I, way. Yeah, but I don't think so sorry, this is you say this is a step by the NPC to do that or the and you mean the NNA? No, this is a step by the NPC because at this point they're desperate to hold on to their political autonomy in the North because there's actually the threat of UPGA just based on the fact that in the past the action group has secured seats right. through campaigning. They don't want a repeat of that. So at this point they are desperate <clears throat> to hold on against the threat of the UPGA, which is one of the first, or the first time there's an actual alliance between the East and the West, more or less. So that that makes it will be like the true, you know, nationalist movement in Nigeria. And this is something the North is obviously not in favor of, just based on their past actions. So it, I feel it does speak a bit to their desperation to hold on to power where they are now willing to hold a free and fair election. And this is what they did in the North, and this is what they repeated in the Western region. Yep, it's, no, a hundred percent, right? So I want to actually give you real figures, right? Because I think, um, I think uh, Aminu Kamu was a little, it felt like an exaggeration a little bit, but um, in the actual text suggests that in Kanu, uh, in October nineteen sixty four, when local police are uh, so often UPGA candidates and supporters were arbitrarily de detained or arrested, as in Kanu in October nineteen sixty four, when local police arrested a reported two hundred and ninety seven UPGA supporters. They refused recourse to lawyers when brought before the local Alakali courts. 68 were released and ordered to return to their home districts, while 134 were held over six months, and 95 were imprisoned for terms ranging from six months to a year. On October 7th, 17, Joseph Tucker, leader of the UMBC and one of the highest-ranking UPGA members, 
were, was arrested on charges of incitement, further hampering the UPGA campaign in the north. Right? So it's like in the Western region, it was pretty bad as well. Because remember, Akintola essentially controlled uh, the region, right? Um, if you, uh, I think the word that he uses, he controlled the regional government, the civil service, and the electoral machinery, right? So it, it's, it's, it's clear that um, in both of these regions where they had uh, NNA leadership, not only was it that um, these guys would have an uphill battle to fight, but they basically used their power and intimidation to suppress what would have been essentially a legal um, you know, opportunity to run for an election, right? So I feel like that's a really important factor into, you know, kind of explaining how deep and how, uh, you know, how deep the resentment was, right? So ultimately, what this led to was Namdi um, Azikwe, who was obviously the leader of the UPGA, uh, pushing to boycott. But the boycott didn't even make sense, right? Because uh, they didn't really boycott in the eastern region where they had secured their power or the midwest region where they had secured their power, right? Um, the only place they really boycotted was in the west and the north, right? Which obviously the other parties are like, well, if you don't show up, that's fine. We're going to go anyway. So what ultimately happened was they proceeded with the election in those regions, secured all the seats in those regions, right? And uh, ultimately won the election, you know, with, with I, I don't even have the numbers in front of me, but uh, it was, you know, is enough to say that uh, they basically secured leadership, right? They, they secured um, control of the federal government. Uh, so what do you think about that boycotting as an election strategy? Uh, I don't think it was effective. At all. I, like, it, Especially because, you know, you can't do it in one region and apply another exactly and and i mean and the thing is like obviously it's understood because the truth is like i mentioned earlier the npc wasn't going to campaign for any positions anywhere apart from the north they didn't need to they had 174 seats available as long as they secure that area they're fine so with them boycotting it is basically they meant they left the 174 seats in the north to be secured so the, the north the, the the npc would not even have needed to form an alliance with akintola's group the nndp with that kind of precedent going on, right? So this essentially caused a, um, somehow, you know, I guess because of the Northern leadership and the, you know, uh, in the North, not only was this thing accepted, there wasn't any real protest from the people, right? In the East and the Midwest, you know, they had already secured leadership, so no real need to protest there. So this essentially led to a huge riot and protest um, in the Western region because, this is, you know, this is Akintola had secured, uh, uh, you know, control of the of the Western region again, uh, again without effectively conducting an election. Right, the first time he was imposed by the federal government. The second time, he basically used intimidation and his political position to uh, secure his position. So, what's clear is that um, for the majority of the people in the Western region, did not support that government. Right, they did not support the NNDP and. Uh, Following that election, they essentially uh, they essentially protested. This led to a follow up election in the Western Region in 1965, which exactly the same thing happened again, of course, right? And uh, that's what basically what led to the the Western Region crisis. Is this how you understand? I, I don't think I did a great job um, articulating that, but I think the message is still clear, right? That uh, following that ele election, the the only place where 
there was a real incentive to run the election again was in Western region. And when they did that, the same thing happened. Even more intimidation happened, right? And because he won again, uh, people dis dissolved into riots. Um, I think there's some additional points that we, from our discussions that you pointed out. Do you want to like maybe talk about uh, some of the things that may have happened that were so egregious that, egregious that um, would have left to that kind of frustration? I think uh, for one, one of the um, participants of the coup in the form of Captain, um, I think it's Manuel Orji. Well, I'm not sure of his first name, but I know his last name is Orji for sure. Uh, no, either Captain Orgy or Captain Wobosi. I need to verify that, but I'm pretty sure it was Captain Orgy. Uh, that's O R J I, by the way. He uh, <clears throat> um, was stationed in Nabelkuta, which was a major city in the western region, and he was ordered to go and protect ballot boxes. So these ballot boxes were unopened. However, uh, a winner had already been won. Uh, a winner had already been declared in the form of Akitola. So this kind of blatant corruption being witnessed by the military, and also the military being used as a tool of oppression, is uh, I think would have caused some um, resentment within the military against their against the leadership, or against the civilian-led government. Another point is, um, even though Tafa Balua never declared a state of emergency in the western region, he did deploy, or the 4th Battalion was deployed to um, the western region to more or less bring the violence under control. The 4th Battalion was, a, was made up of mostly northern um, infantry and officers, and it was headed by Brigadier my Malari, who was also one of the people killed by the eventual 1966 coup. And at the time, I'm pretty sure there are uh, uh, quotes by Yoruba people in the Western region calling the 4th Battalion an occupational force. So um, just within the military, one can see how <clears throat> them, like, because, you know, the military is supposed to be an institution that's, quote-unquote, honorable and, quote-unquote, non-political or apolitical, right? It's not supposed to have any political affiliations. Right. So when it's used, being used to quell, you know, political disagreements or <clears throat> being used to rig elections, one can see how the actual members will feel that it's a disservice to them and what they stand for and feel they, they will take it upon themselves to make a change, especially when it is apparent that the leadership is involved. So essentially you're saying that... We know for a fact that the leadership of the military at this time, except for General Aguin Rossi, the highest-ranking officers were Brigadier Ademulegu, who was in the north, and Brigadier Shudendi, who was also in the north. These two officers are known to have frequented Amadabilo's residence several times for dinners, for lunches, and just, you know, general fraternizing. And then we know in the Southwest, the person who came to quell the quote-unquote riots in the Southwest, even though there was no state of emergency, there was a police force that was more or less perfectly capable <clears throat> 
or even if they weren't capable, at least declare a state of emergency so we know why you're sending the military in. But no state of emergency was declared, even though it had been requested. And yet, the military was sent in in the form of the 4th Battalion, who was headed by, which was headed by May Malari in Northerner, and mm-hmm. was fully or was majority, was a... Primarily con- comprised of northern officers and infantry. These northern officers and infantry were like perpetrated extensive violence against citizens of the western region. In addition to that, Captain Orji, who is stationed in Abelkota, he's an eastern but he's stationed in Abelkota. He's ordered to go guard ballot boxes, unopened ballot boxes, and yet the winner is declared in the form of Akitola. So he knows for a fact, and these are his own words, that the <coughs> ballot boxes are, are an open boy. Winner is being declared. So I'm seeing at this point, members of the military who eventually perpetuated the coup will definitely see themselves as a tool of the NPC-led corrupt government, at least in their perception. <coughs> and right. you know, as the military is supposed to be an apolitical institution, it's supposed to be free from political bias, but it's clearly being used to either suppress, you know, civilian protests or being used to just full-on rig elections, it makes sense that some officers might take it upon themselves to make a change. Okay. Um, and on that note, we're, I think we should just leave it there. So let's, let's, let's just do a quick, like, you know, summary of, you know, I'm going to do a quick summary, but I want to hear your final thoughts on that because that's, that's, that's a great point. And I totally agree with you on that, right? Like, it... Uh, the, the, the soldiers are seeing everything that's going on, not just what's happening in the Western region, but what's been happening for basically the past two, three, four years. So we basically talked about the fact that, you know, the alliances were kind of... Uh, were not never really ideological. They were kind of based on you know ethnic lines. Uh, and once anything anything happened, anything bad happened, it typically each party would essentially uh, stoke ethnic resentment to secure their position, right? And then you know once we had a 1962 census that essentially fractured the relationship between the MPC and the NCNC and uh, the growing distance between the action groups Awolowo and Akintola. We're looking at uh, what would basically uh, lead to a very, very, very contentious 1964 elections, right? And then following the elections and the clear cheating and oppression and bullying that's happening, it essentially led to the Western region crisis. So uh, now what's important to note that this, this crisis essentially happened in late 1965, right? Like this is all happening in essentially the last quarter of 1965. And by January 15, 1966, the first military coup happened, right? Um, what are like, you know, so before we, you know, we jump into the conversation in the next episode, what would you say, uh, you know, how would you summarize, uh, the key problems or key symptoms, um, of problems that Nigeria was going through at this time? I'll say the clear, the major symptom will be the government wasn't actually about furthering the interests of the citizens. It was about enriching the members of the government. And it was also about pushing a regionalist agenda, which will, which will fully consolidate the political power in each region. And in which case, all you will have to do 
is have a proxy in each region. The MPC right. dominated the north. They had a proxy in the southwest in the form of Akitola, who was rigging elections, enriching himself. The only uh, counterpart, uh, the only opposition might be the UPGA, but even within the UPGA, <clears throat> they were quote-unquote the 10 percenters who um, uh, awarded contracts and collected commissions from that, which include... Uh, uh, the only uh, name that comes to my head right now is Festo Sokotiebo. Uh, Frex Festo Sokotiebo as well. Yeah, so, and way, for, yeah. So it's like, uh, from the military perspective, no doubt they might have been, you know, misguided. But at the same time, it's hard for them to literally just sit down and watch it happen. Like, that's not what they're trained to do. These are men of action, quote unquote. Right, and when you know it is clear that the leadership of the military is in bed with these civilian leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, I, and that, so you you made you made some really interesting points there that I, I think we're we should explore later on, um, because okay. you've not really got into how uh, the military itself was politicized, which we'll touch on the next episode, right? right. Um, so. For me, though, um, I think one of the major things I took away from all of this was um, uh, first uh, that they were there that the tribal issues to me um, when we talk about these things in Nigeria are really superficial, right? And they're they're effective on people who are not well educated or people who are uh, essentially suffering as a result of the political elite. What do I mean by that? I mean that um, there were class pressures underlying. Uh, the issues, the tribal tensions that we're talking about, right? Like it's 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 kind of like the subliminal, um, the subliminal thing that's sitting underneath the surface that people don't really choose to acknowledge. So what do I mean by that? I don't think there was any ever real resentment between the actual people. Do you understand what I mean? So if Igbo people are working in the north or 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 in the west or in the east, I don't think there was any real resentment because and, and and you really start to recognize that. When you talk about um, when we start talking about the, some of the uh, cool plotters, right, and some of their background, right, but one hundred percent agree with that yeah, sentiment, right. So, 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 to me, to me, like what I, 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 I keep seeing is basically people in power understanding that using ethnic tensions and using those fears um, are effective drivers for essentially uh, achieving their their political goals. Right, and those those things are also essentially effective. So you know, I see Amadubello essentially looking at the idea of um, saying these people are going to come and steal your jobs, not saying that well, hey, all of us can essentially fight for these jobs. The only reason why these people can take your jobs, right, is because you implemented an idea of not having them educated because you see that as a threat. So you know, essentially from 1914, they they created a legacy of lack of education in the north, not. This was not by any other region. This was only implemented by the, the elite and people in power. Once they recognized the problem, they did not choose to fix it, right? Because, again, they still see it as a threat, right? So they, they essentially effectively use ethnic division to promote hate and promote fear. So it's because the, the truth at the end of the day is that, like, those positions that those uh, Easterners were taking were not going to be filled by the regular people in the East. Right, and I think that was the point you were pointing out earlier to me. You were you were really trying to say that, like, I don't think they were ever really pushing education more so that they were pushing maybe education for the elites, 
right? And what essentially that means is, even if uh, a northerner is in that position, it's going to be somebody of privilege and it's not going to give any opportunity for anybody to work off the ladder because that is seen as a threat, right? Um, in, the eastern, in the eastern and western region, eastern region was a little bit more open and democratic in that sense because that was culturally consistent with how they approached things. Also part of the reason why um, the North resented that because they didn't want that ideology or that approach or that mindset to essentially be brought up to the North because that as well is a threat. Right. So so for me, the big thing is class actions, right? Class action, which uh, I think um, Sklar touches on um, a lot of the different um, pieces and articles, uh, 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 papers that we use touch on. Right. The other thing was continuous um, abuse of power by the MPC and uh, and essentially the elites. Right. So what's also, uh, you know, I think we talk about NCNC quite favorably here, but there is definitely some NCNC leaders like uh, uh, and a few others who essentially were also of the mindset of securing riches for themselves first and basically forming alliances in, in interest of self as opposed to the people, right? So with MPC and NNDP though, that abuse of power, I think, became more and more glaringly obvious and hard to ignore, right? So it's, it's one thing to have power and to wield it, you know, in a subtle manner. And it's another thing to just kind of blatantly place uh you know one region you how can you be talking about having regional autonomy and then you basically declare a state of emergency in one region and impose the person that you like without an election you know how how, how like how do you <laughs> balance those two ideologies in the same place right which is something that they would have never tolerated or accepted but expected to impose on another region without any uh any 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 contest right and then i think the last thing is like when, when that growing frustration continues to develop and, uh, and exists within the people, like something is, is always going to happen. And, you know, it, there's always going to be violence at the end of the day when that gross abuse of power continues. Now, what we normally see is a gross abuse of power and violence coming from the leadership, right? And you talked about the entire protest. That's essentially what happened, right? Like we're essentially protesting and pushing um, the government to do what's right. And your response is to use violence. And, you know, at some point, the people are going to start to take the violence to essentially respond to the power powers that be. And that's going to be an ugly sight. So I think those are the three big things I kind of took away from this piece here. Um, the class action, uh, blatant abuse of power, and the, it, that, and the reaction to it, right? So no matter how educated people are, they're still going to see that abuse of power because it's, you know, it's just human, you know. Right? It's it's uh it's innate. You don't need to go to school for to to see to 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 see that you're being oppressed. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So um, that was a mouthful, but uh, <laughs> uh, Lola, I want to say thank you so much for uh working on this and uh you know having this conversation, preliminary conversations with me. You know, uh, Lola was also affected, really helpful in finding uh, the research that we did to have this conversation. Um, I think the goal for me uh, was to essentially just have a con an informed conversation about Nigerian history and some of the political uh, legacies that we essentially forced to continue to deal with. Um, Laura, what, what's your perspective? And, you know, I, I want you to really maybe let the people know uh, what, in you know, what inspires you to, to do this or what is driving um, the conversation for you. Um, <clears throat> I think... Yeah, like you say, just having informed conversations, not just forming an opinion based on uh, emotion or feeling or hearsay, 
um just you know so we can actually move forward right and stop going in circles especially with all the talk of uh you know secession today yoruba people want to make their own country Igbo people want to make their own country um i think you know we should we should question that narrative as opposed to who would really benefit if the country were um dispersed who would try all the corrupt leaders where will all the <laughs> recovered funds go and most important how would we address the national debt we've incurred together as a country and you know if we're all gonna border if each country is gonna border the next country is that gonna make you more safe or more scared it's it's just a it doesn't it doesn't it seems like we work better together like and I, this is just that this is opinion. I can't say factually we've worked better together based on history. Right. But at the same time, <clears throat> that's what conversations like this do is actually highlight the nuance of that history. It's not so black and white where it's this tribe against another tribe, as right. opposed to some people out for themselves while the rest of the people suffer. 100%. And I think, uh, you know, just to add to your point, really, um, like another thing is if we divvy up the borders, right? Um, you know, how do you decide where the border starts or stops, you know, because you have so many states now. Right. And, and does that really essentially stop corruption? Does that guarantee, do we, does that guarantee that if you cut out the North or you cut out the West or you cut out the East, East for whatever reason, does that guarantee that uh, your leaders won't be corrupt? <laughs> because we know that, that there's corruption in all the regions, in all the states, all over the country. Right. I think there is value in staying together because I think it's the most effective way to, uh, hold each other accountable, right? And I think uh, we're able to leverage more. And I, I think also that the, the idea of uh, some sort of domination is a farce. Um, it's, it's a complete farce. It, it doesn't exist in anything real or true. And uh, you can still maintain your autonomy and receive others. And there are a lot of countries that are effectively doing that. You know, like there are a lot of countries that have Sharia law but you see churches, you see people, people are able to do and act freely and they don't feel the pressures um, of, 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 you know, of, of that government. And there are countries where it, it's Western, but there's a space for, um, you know, uh, essentially theocratic rule or, or, you know, essentially Sharia law. There, and again, each region can essentially maintain uh, or each state can essentially maintain um, their autonomy. Yeah, and their autonomy. That's the point of respect. federalism. Yeah, with the respect to just everybody um, who represents your country. Because ultimately, mm -hmm. when we leave here, we're all looked at as Nigerian. They don't care about whether you're Igbo, Yoruba, Hausa, Edo, Akwaibom. Like, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it, it ultimately, it, 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 when, when you spend so much time outside Nigeria, maybe that's, that's the bias I, I, I would say that I have, is that, you know, we, we don't we don't check that at the door, you know. We we might understand and we see, it, but you know, we have relationships with everyone, and we can understand and have space um for each of our ideologies. So, um, yeah, I I think I think it's important to see how this political uh uh landscape has affected our thinking, and uh, I guess in in the future episodes you will we'll talk about how uh the military um aspect of things also uh change the dynamics not just politically but also culturally as well as you mentioned earlier uh one of the driving forces that eventually led to this uh 
military coup was class action. So I think it's important for all of us and everyone listening to also question, you know, that elitism within yourself and how you're chasing and how and why you're chasing it. Like why you so badly want to be better than your neighbor and, you know, <clears throat> the cumulative effects of that. Yep. Is it moving Nigeria forward? Is it moving Nigeria backward? Or does it make sense if we have a more responsible government? Beautifully said. I'll end with that. And that's the show, guys. No takes today. Consider the last little bit of takes. First, I want to thank Wala for taking the time to thought this out with me. It was a bit of a process, but it was fun nonetheless. And I'm looking forward to having him back in the near future. Next, I want to go over some of the references that were helpful in, you know, jumpstarting this conversation and keeping us on track. So the first one is All Politics and Violence, Nigeria's Military Cool Culture from 1966 to 1976 by Max This definitely got everything started for me and it provided pretty good context to everything that was going on in that period, particularly what leading up to that period as well. He also has a book that just came out called What Britain Did to Nigeria, which I'm excited to start reading whenever I'm done with this. The second thing is Class Ethnicity and the Democratic State in Nigeria from 1950 to 1966 by Larry Diamond. Third is Party, Party Coalitions in Nigeria, History, Trends, and Prospects by Anthony Akinola. Fourth is Leadership Crisis and Political Instability in Nigeria, 1964 to 1966, The Personalities, the Parties, and the Policies, a review by Emmanuel Oladipo Ojo. Now, Emmanuel uh, Oladipo Ojo has a lot of papers out there that I came across as I was doing the research. So keep an eye out for him as well and check out his work. Uh, the fifth and final one was Nigerian Political Parties, Powering an Emerging African Nation by Robert L. Sklar. Um, Sklar is a really uh, reputable uh, political scientist and advisor, and he has a lot of works, not just on Nigeria, but all over the West African region as well. So check out his work. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can write to me at two takes and a pod at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media at two takes and a pod. That's TWO takes and a pod on Twitter and Instagram. Now I'm looking forward to hearing from you, but make sure to come correct though. Music on this podcast is by Boye, and you can find him on Facebook at 1705music. That's 1705music. The outro music is by Asha Jailer. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can find this wherever you find podcasts. And while you're there, show some love by giving this five stars, you know, or love or a like. You know the vibes. This has been Two Takes on the Pod. Thank you for listening. Peace. Mr. Chainerman You don't care About my point of view If I die Another will work for you So you treat me Like a modern slave Mr. Taylor I'm talking to you Jailer Stop calling me
marketplace Down trunk stones If and if you do You just mind One of your own Life is not about your policies All the time So you better rearrange your philosophies And be good to your fellow man Stop calling me Stop calling me up.